Our Declaration of Independence says all people are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. For the last 40 plus years, there's been ongoing debate as to what constitutes human life. This was triggered by rendering by our Supreme Court on January the 22nd, 1973, which concluded, the Supreme Court concluded, that a child is not a person until it exits its mother's womb. Pro-life advocates like me contend that elective abortion unjustly takes the life of a defenseless human being. Are we right to make that conclusion? Is the unborn a member of the human race? If so, taking his or her life is an egregious moral wrong. The evidence, I believe, is clear, both from a scientific point of view as well as a scriptural point of view, which is the more important point of view, I might add, that people become people in their mother's wombs. In particular, people became human beings at the point of their conception. Why do I say that? Let me give you an illustration of this. In 1981, the United States Senate appointed a committee, a panel of blue ribbon experts in the field of science as it relates to embryology. And I'm going to read two statements which were given in summation after all the studying had been done by this panel of scientific experts, many of whom were not in favor of the idea of abortion, but many of whom were in favor of permissive abortion, according to the rendering of the Supreme Court. I'll begin with a professor from the Harvard Medical School. Her name, Dr. Micheline Matthews-Roth. This is her statement. It is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception when egg and sperm join to form a zygote. Dr. Jaime Gordon, a geneticist from Mayo's Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, said this, I have read of no one who has argued that life did not begin at conception. And by the way, None of this auspicious panel, none, even those who would argue for permissive abortion, none of them disagreed with these statements. No pushback on it. From a scientific point of view, a human being is a human being at the point of conception. Perhaps you know as the embryo grows in the womb of the mother, at nine days, the fetus, as it's called, and by the way, that's Latin simply for young or suckling. It's just a way of covering up the idea that a person is a person at the moment of conception. At nine days, the fetus connects implants into the wall of the mother's uterus or womb. At 17 days, there are blood cells 
At 18 days after conception, there is the beginning of a heart. At 20 days, all the parts of the nervous system are in place, including the brain and the spinal cord. At 45 days, brain waves are emitted, which are identical to adult brain waves in response to certain stimuli. After 56 days, there are no new organs which are formed. In the third month, many of you have seen this, as you've seen your own child when you went and saw that beautiful child in your womb or in your wife's womb. You saw it. It just brought tears to your eyes and you were crying tears of joy, I know. In the third month, frowns are detected on these human beings in miniature in their mother's wombs. Squirt, the, the person in the womb can squint, drink, squirms. You know about that, don't you, mothers? When you feel that movement, bends the wrist, sucks the thumb in other activities. So we know that the scientific evidence is clear. When a person is conceived, the person has all the genetic makeup that it will ever have in terms of becoming who he or she has been destined to become from God's point of view. Your gender, your race, your hair color and texture, your eyes, your height that you will grow to, all those things are plugged in at the moment of conception. Perhaps you're familiar with NARAL. NARAL was formed early in the pro-choice movement. It was a group of people who were scientists and advocates for a woman's right to choose what to do with the baby she's carrying, even to take that child's life, if so inclined. And there was a group of 12 who were the pioneers in this area. And one's name was Mr. or Dr. Nathanson. And Dr. Nathanson was an atheist by his own description. And he was one of the architects of NARAL, the National Association of the Repeal of Abortion Laws. He describes himself as one who had not a seedling of faith to nourish him. Therefore, he began practicing abortions in his OBGYN practice. He oversaw 75,000 abortions. Can you imagine? And it was not until he saw projected on a screen when the technology reached the point where you could actually see the infant in the womb. He said, all of a sudden, my perspective was totally changed. Let me read what he said about that. He said, from then on, we could see this person in the womb from the very beginning and study and measure it and weigh it and take care of it and treat it and diagnose it and do all kinds of things. It became, in essence, a second patient. Now, a patient is a person, he writes. So, basically, I was dealing with two people instead of just one carrying some lump of flesh around. That's what started me doubting the ethical acceptability of abortion on request. He made a radical reversal. And instead of being an advocate 
for abortion. He became actually a pro-life advocate and did a lot of good after he had seen the light scientifically. And I might go on to say he saw the light spiritually too. He came to faith in the Lord and trusted the Lord. Scripturally, the Bible has lots of information about when a person is a person. When does a person become a human being? And it predates, by the way, coming from the mother's womb. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. She conceived Cain and bore Cain is the idea. When he was conceived in his mother's womb, he was Cain. He was a male human being. And when he was born, he was still Cain. He was Cain throughout the entire process. And she said, I have given, gotten a man, rather, with the help of the Lord. If you'll go to the 25th chapter of Genesis, we're going to read a snippet of the story of when... Rachel, the wife, Rebecca rather, the wife of Isaac, became pregnant with Esau and Jacob. Verse 22 says, The children struggled together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And the word for children is a word that's used repeatedly to describe children who are already out of the womb in the Old Testament with the same word in Hebrew. So we know God doesn't make mistakes with the usage of His words. All words are inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit of God. This was no accident. And these boys wrestled and fought each other, in effect, in their mother's womb. Now let's go to Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. And we hear something that Job says early in this book. The last line of Job 3, verse 3, speaking about his conception on a particular night, it was said, a man is conceived. A human being is conceived. It's the word Adam, which is Adam, of course, but it's the generic word for a man, a human being was conceived at that point. If you go to the New Testament now, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Matthew 1.18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The word for child, once more, it's a different word because it's in the language of the New Testament, which is Greek. But just like the Old Testament uses the common word for child or children to describe these boys, Esau and Jacob, wrestling in their mother's womb or speaking of Cain in the womb. In the New Testament, there is this word, and this word is used here, talking about Jesus in utero. The same way that the scriptures talk about him as a child or others in their childhood. So childhood begins in the womb. Now turn to the Gospel of Luke, 
a little further into your New Testament. Luke chapter 1, verses 41 through 44. The background of this is Mary has had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. She's become pregnant with God's child by the Holy Spirit. She makes a trek to see her cousin Elizabeth, who is older than she, but evidently a godly woman. And she wanted to share this with someone, but she had a sense that Elizabeth would understand. And it was based on, undoubtedly, Elizabeth's spirituality. She got there, probably a three days journey at least, from the north in Galilee, from Nazareth, all the way down to the southeast where Elizabeth lived. Elizabeth had become pregnant. She and her husband had been barren. They were past what was thought the age of having children. The angel of the Lord came to her husband, Zacharias, and told him, you're going to have a child. He was incredulous. But as it turned out, God is not bothered by our unbelief, is He, at times? He gave what He promised He would give, and a child was conceived in Elizabeth's womb by her husband and Zacharias. And that's the background of these verses we're going to look at in Luke 1, 41 and following. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. This is the word that's used for a baby born already out of the mother's womb. The baby leapt in the womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? That the mother of my Lord should come to me. She was a godly woman, wasn't she, Elizabeth? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped. Now look, for joy. I don't understand all that. But this six-month in utero child had a joyful response to the acknowledgement by her, his mother, and then hearing this cousin of his, Mary, declare that she was with child by the Holy Spirit. And he, of course, John the Baptist, became the forerunner. He ran interference for Jesus before Jesus began his public ministry and actually baptized him. In Scripture, a little later in the book of Acts, if you'll go to the book of Acts chapter 7, verses 17 through 19. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants. Now, this is a picture of infancy, but it goes to show how God, we're going to see in a moment, cares from children while they're in the womb, but also once they exit the womb. God's interest in, is not limited to any set of human beings. He's interested in us from the beginning of our life in our mother's wombs until the end of our lives when we leave this world and go to be with God in heaven if we know Jesus. He's interested. Now go to Galatians chapter 1. We'll come back and look a little more carefully at the event that's described in Acts 7, 17 through 19 in a while. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. This is the testimony of the Apostle Paul about himself. 
Almost in passing, he makes this reference to his life in the womb of his mother. Verse 15 of Galatians 1. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Did you catch it? But when he who had set me apart before I was born, born through the birth canal is what he's talking about. When I was in the womb, he set me apart. God set Paul apart while he was still in the womb. He was a person. He was Paul then from God's point of view. Saul, his Hebrew name, Paul. God knew what he had in mind for him, just like he knew what he had in mind for you and me when we were conceived in our mother's womb. Whenever there is the union of sperm and egg, I mean sperm, yes, an egg to form a fertilized egg, a zygote or an embryo or a fetus, whatever designation you might want to give it, a person is scientifically alive as a person and certainly scripturally alive. That great theologian, Dr. Seuss, says a person is a person no matter how small. He understood it. And even in the womb, before the mother knows that she's pregnant, there's a person. It's phenomenal to think about. We have the misfortune to live in what is known as an era of moral relativism. What does that mean? What it simply means is this. Those who are moral relativists say there is no objective moral at all. What's moral for you is okay. What's moral for me is okay. Everyone can be whoever she or he wants to be without worrying about breaking any kind of moral code or law. The Bible says all wrongdoing is sin. Who decides what's right and wrong? Well, God has been very clear in describing what's right and what's wrong. Aren't you glad there are some rules that God has established for relating to Him especially, but also with one another? Can you imagine what a world without rules would be like? We're on the brink of such a world, actually, where every person is a law unto himself or herself. But that's just not God's order. That's not God's way. And people who speak up for the unborn many times are labeled as judgmental and are asked questions like, where do you get off telling me what's right for me? Well, we don't have any right to tell people what we think, but we do have a kindness to pass on to people to let them know what the truth is. Understanding that the truth will set them free. Free of the bondage that the idea of moral relativism brings into their lives when they act as independent operators having been created in the first place in the image of God to depend upon the Father. Have you ever stopped to think Jesus fully God stepped out of heaven to become one of us. And He chose, because the Father gave Him this instruction, He chose to live 
in a relationship of dependence upon the Father for everything throughout his life. In the book of John chapter 8, 28, the scripture says, Jesus says this, I do nothing on my own authority. How much did he do on his own? Nothing. And Jesus is the prototypical human being. The Bible talks in the book of 1 Corinthians 15 about the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. The first Adam messed up. He fell from relationship with God because he went independent. He went rogue. Jesus came and he had all the power to do whatever he wanted to do, but he chose to submit to the Father. And therein is the picture of what we were created to do and to be. And we, if we do that, we are people who will be free, free of all the restrictions that sin places on us. The Bible says that the wages of sin is life. Is that what the Bible says? Death. Sin deals death, but Jesus sets us free. He's the truth. When we trust in Him, we depend on the Father. Let me give you an example of a person might come as a surprise to you. The name Nick Cannon may not mean anything to you. But if you ever look at America's Got Talent and more recently The Masked Singer. I haven't watched The Masked Singer yet. I just see it advertised when I'm watching the Cowboys play football. But that's over, right? It's all over for another nine months anyway. I know a lot of people are glad it's over. But Nick Cannon's the MC. Do you know he's a staunch advocate for the unborn? Did you know that? It stems back at least to his own personal experience. When he was in the womb, his mother, 17 years of age, impregnated by someone who was not her husband. She was not married. She wanted to reach a good decision for her. She went to get counsel at an abortion clinic. And as she mulled it over, she chose to keep Nick. He became aware of this. I don't know at what age he did. But he's a rap artist also. And he wrote a song and performed a song which was a hit, Can I Live? And it's as if he is speaking from the womb of his mother going back down the corridors of his life. And here's the line that got him in trouble with critics who don't like to hear things like we're talking about today. Here's the line. Mommy, hopefully you'll take, make the right decision and don't go through with the knife incision. And here's a man who is alive today and I'm sure he's serving a purpose that's meaningful in people's lives. But thank God for his mother not going the next step and following through with aborting him. The taking of the life of the unborn is as immoral as the taking of a life of a 2-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 70-year-old or a 90-year-old. It does not matter when life is conceived to the point of death... Every person bears the image of God. And every person is meaningful to God. God cares about those people. And no one has the right to take that person's life. Even our 
founding fathers understood this. In the Fifth Amendment, there is this statement made that no person will be deprived of life without due process of law. Think about the over 50 million children. Let that sink into you. Since January the 26th, 1973, there's 50 million people who have been aborted in their mother's womb. Think about the one and a half billion people since 1980 who've been aborted worldwide. Think about that. That's staggering, isn't it? And they have been deprived of their rights. They've been unlawfully dismissed from life as defenseless human beings. Each person has value, as I mentioned, because we are people created in His image. And it's not for me or you to decide if a person has the level of quality of life that she or he can contribute to society, can make a contribute to our lives. It's about the fact that that child has been given life by God. That person has. And we have a responsibility as believers, I believe, to guard them. God doesn't love you because you're inherently valuable. In fact, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean? It means we were the enemies of God, and then God demonstrated His own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He gave His only begotten Son to die for us, to take the punishment for us. The Bible says, God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His children. In love. There are two words that predominated as it related to love in the New Testament era. The word eros doesn't appear in the New Testament, but it was commonly used to describe the love relationship between lovers in the world. And the word erotic comes from the word eros, the New Testament era word for love, the word eroticism, and it usually has a negative idea associated with it, if not an evil idea, when we think of that which is erotic or eroticism. But what I've discovered in my research is that that word was used in a very constructive, positive way at times. For instance, it was used to describe a man who had a deep love for his family and his love caused him to lay down his life for his family. He loved them. He was a hero in that. He was doing what a good husband would do. The other word, the New Testament word, is agape, the word for love. The noun agapao is the verbal form of it. This word means the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. Not people whom I deem valuable. Not people whom you would perhaps deem valuable. But people whom God deems valuable because in His grace He sees our potential. And He has made a way for us to come to know God the Father through His sacrificial love for us on the cross and His subsequent resurrection from the dead. We are valuable because God loves us. 
And He has a plan for us. He cares for us as His children. If we know Him, we know Him through Jesus Christ as our Lord. The historical effort on behalf of those who were endangered by those who saw them as not worthy of protection is amazing. When you look at the life of believers in Jesus. I'm going to give you an introductory illustration of this. It is set in World War II France. France was occupied by the German forces. There was a little village, La Chambon. There were only 3,000 inhabitants in this very modest village. That village, under the leadership of a man named André Tokome, that village harbored and kept, say, 5,000 Jews from being exterminated by Hitler's Germany, most of whom were children. It's an amazing story of God's great sacrificial grace. And it's told in a book, Lest There Be Blood Shed, was the name. The Innocent Blood Be Shed is the title of this book. But let's go back to biblical times. Let's start with Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob. Remember his little brother Joseph kind of got too big for his britches. And he told his nine older brothers that there was coming a day when all of them were going to bow down to him, in effect, to worship him. And they didn't take too kindly to that. When Reuben left his younger siblings to do something in the shepherding process, the other eight hatched a plot. Their plot was, hey, let's kill this little dude. What we'll do, we'll kill an animal, take the blood, put it on the clothing that he wears because he's seen by our father as the favorite child, and then we'll go back to Daddy and we'll tell him that he got attacked by an animal. And they all were in, all eight of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. But then Reuben comes back and he sees what they're trying to do. And he says, hey, wait a minute, little brothers. Wait a minute. I saw a caravan of slave traders going south toward Egypt. Why don't we sell him and let him go? And we won't ever have to worry about him again. He'll never come back. He'll just be a slave in Egypt for the rest of his life. So Reuben, I mean, he didn't go all the way in delivering his little brother, but he kept him from dying. And we should be grateful for that because we are people who to this day benefit by his great life. I'm talking about the life of Joseph and consequently the influence that Reuben exercised. In Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, the Scripture tells us about how Pharaoh, we read about it in Acts, how Pharaoh gave orders to the two leading midwives in Israel to kill every male child who came out of the womb of an Israeli woman. And they didn't do it. And their story was the Israeli women are more vigorous than the Egyptian women, and they have their babies before we even get there. We don't even get a chance to help them in the birthing process. And Pharaoh accepted that from them. So they were heroic. There's a man named Obadiah, not to be confused with the prophet Obadiah in the Old Testament, although he has described this man Obadiah I'm speaking of now. In the book of 1 Kings 18, Jezebel, the queen of Israel, which she was a wicked queen, she was like a witch, really, she said to round up all the prophets, there were a hundred prophets, 
on the loose. And they were prophesying against Ahab, her husband, the king of Israel, and her. But what Obadiah did, he got them together and he hid them out until she was gone. That took courage, protecting the vulnerable. Esther, do you know her story? What the heroine she was. She was the queen of the Persian media, media and kind of kingdom. And it was told to her guardian, Mordecai, who was actually her first cousin, that her people, the Jews, were going to be exterminated throughout the whole nation due to the devilment put into action by a man named Haman who hated the Jews. I wish we had time to go into why he hated the Jews. But read about him in Esther and then go back to 1 Samuel 15 and you'll see why he hated the Jews. But nevertheless, she took the suggestion of her guardian and she went at great risk to her husband, the king, and she begged for him to intervene on behalf of the Jewish people, her people. And he did. And the Jewish nation was kept from being wiped out. Let's look at the way in which, from the beginning, believers in Christ came to the rescue of people who were endangered, people who were vulnerable. We can begin with a document which is from the first century, about 110 A.D. It was called the Didache, which simply means teaching is what it means. It was a rule of practice of the Christian faith. It was used by churches all over the world as a means to make decisions about practical matters. And in that document, the Didache, listen to what is written There are two different ways, the way of life and the way of death, and the difference between these two ways is great. Therefore, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Neither abortion or infanticide was permitted. Perhaps you know that the day of Paul, the apostle, and that would be true for Jesus, but the day was a dangerous day in the Roman Empire for infants. Infanticide was practiced, exposure, abandonment, abortion, all those things. It was not uncommon on any given day to see several mothers take a child and place the child outside the walls where the child would be exposed, an infant, and would either die of exposure to the elements or be taken away by wild animals and destroyed. That was the case. That was the New Testament era. The church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century advocated for protection of children, particularly Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Hippolytus, among many, all condemned abortion and defended unborn human life. Think about St. Augustine, this great man from our Christian past, one of the great names in the history of the church, He said this about men who force their wives or their lovers to have an abortion. This is what he wrote. They provoke women, these men, to such extravagant methods as to use poisonous drugs to secure barrenness or else, if unsuccessful in this, to murder the unborn child. If you go eastward in the same time frame, Basil of Caesarea, the great patriarchal hero of the Greek Orthodox Church, as we call it, 
was appalled to discover that abortionists were at work in his own town where he was bishop, Caesarea. He marshaled the resources of the Christian community and summoned them to life-saving action. Some years later, the emperor Valentinian, in response to this emphasis of Basil, made a law. And listen to this law related to abortion, infanticide, exposure, and abandonment in, in the 4th century A.D. All parents must support their children conceived. Those who brutalize or abandon them should be subject to the full penalty, penalty prescribed by law. I could give you illustration after illustration from church history of how the church has been the point of the spear when it comes to caring for those that nobody else is willing to care for. To not view people as nuisances, to not view people as unhelpful, but to see every human being as one who is created in God's image. William Carey, the man who has been described as the father of modern missions, when he went to India, it was a vast throng of people he encountered with very little Christian witness. He didn't simply preach the gospel. He preached the gospel. That was his main mission. But it's inherent in the gospel that we who know Jesus are indwelled by Jesus. And Jesus has a heart for the disadvantaged particularly. He cares for those who nobody else cares for. And that Christ in Cary reached out to women who if their husbands died before them were burned alive on the same funeral pyre that the corpse of their dead husband was burned. And he almost single-handedly brought an end to that in India. We often hear of outbreaks of that even today, but it was common practice. Every woman who lost her husband had that fate to look forward to. But he was instrumental in that. Also, he lived near the Ganges River. And the Ganges River is known by most Indians, or was in his day at least, as the mother Ganges, it was treated like a goddess. And so what would happen in this little area where he lived, on the banks of the Ganges, he would count almost a hundred children a year were offered to this Hindu goddess by being thrown into the river and consumed by the alligators there in the river or drowned, whichever came first. It's amazing, isn't it? But he was used to stop that. It's called Carrie's Edict to this day to protect these children who had no one who cared enough to protect them. William Wilberforce, this great man who almost single-handedly had slavery abolished in the British Empire. And then not only the slave trade abolished, but the emancipation. He wasn't satisfied just to stop the bleeding. He wanted to get to the root of the problem, and he had emancipation legislation as a member of the House of Commons in Great Britain. He was a devout follower of Jesus Christ. He was a man who took his role as a politician, a Christian first and a politician, seriously. And he was consumed with seeing that not only that people who were slaves got the gospel, but they got help from those who were free legally to get them freed. And as an illustration of someone who descended 
from slaves here in the United States. Her name is Ethel Waters. She's with the Lord now. Maybe you know her name. She was quite an actress on Broadway. She was only the second African-American person to be nominated for an Academy Award. She was also nominated for a Broadway Emmy. She was the first African-American to have a TV primetime show in which she starred, this woman. She sang often at the request of Billy Graham at one of his evangelistic outings before tens of thousands of people, his eyes on the sparrow. Do any of you ever remember her singing that song? You can probably look it up online. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. This woman was the product of a rape. Her mother was raped. Awful. The very thought of a man forcing himself upon a woman for his own personal gratification in that area is ridiculous. It's unacceptable. But her mother decided as a 13-year-old, probably her parents were definitely involved in that, to keep this child. And look what happened. This child turned out to be a glory to God and a help to so many people to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the past. What about the present? What about us? What are we to do in light of the situation in which we find ourselves? You could think and probably have thought already of things to do. I'm going to suggest several things, beginning with the first thing, and that is pray, pray for the ending of abortion. Make that a daily prayer. You know, the devil has a way of wearing us down. Many of you used to pray, but you quit praying. Don't ever underestimate the power of prayer as we cry out to God and ask Him to bring an ending of this kind of elective abortion. Here's the second thing. Affirm the goodness of children. The Bible says in Psalm 127, verse 3, that children are a heritage from the Lord. Affirm it. I was talking to a couple today. They told me the good news. They're expecting a child. I get excited. If I had a child inside of me, it would have leapt. I think the Holy Spirit leapt a little bit when I got that news. To know that another family in our church, godly couple, they already have three children. And God's blessing them with a fourth child. That's exciting. We need to affirm children. We need to encourage we who don't have any children. My wife and I were unable to have children biologically. And we were blessed to be able to adopt two children whose mothers, who could have aborted either or both of them, chose to take the children full term. And we became the recipients of that joy of being able to be adoptive Parents, Our children came to us, both of them, at the age of five weeks of age. And we had the joy of raising them, and we have the joy now of knowing them as adults. Affirm the goodness of children. Don't look down your nose at people who have more than two and a half children. <laughs> Encourage them. Thank the Lord for them. Love on their children. They've got enough love to go around, but every once in a while you need to love on them too. They need some encouragement. Here's the third thing. Commit yourself to a lifestyle of purity. That's huge. And I'm not just talking about with your body. 
I'm talking more particularly about your mind. It's not my talking. It's what God's Word says. In Ephesians 5.3, the Bible says, Let there not be even a hint of sexual immorality in your speech. Not even a hint. And the thoughts come in this day and time because we have a phone and we've got to keep up with what's going on in the world. The devil's very clever. He'll put things there that would lead us where we ought not to go. And those places pander to our own imagination and our flesh takes us in a direction away from God. In some way, when we participate in those kind of activities, never forcing ourselves upon a woman, never going outside the boundaries of Christian marriage, but in our minds we have this opportunity and we take it. Well, God forbid that we would do that. We need to repent of that. Commit yourself to a lifestyle of purity. Here's the fourth thing. Provide life-giving ministries for women with stressful pregnancies. In other words, women who are pregnant and they don't know what to do. They don't want to abort their baby, but they're scared. They're getting pressure from the father of the child in some cases, from their parents in some cases, and they need support. If we can, as a church, support a young lady in that situation, something is wrong with our Christianity. We don't support the immorality that led to that situation. But by the grace of God, that's where we would be in some area of our lives. But what we need to be is men, or men rather, and women, who really care for these dear women. I had a conversation with a lady in our church, after church. She and her husband were here. And they lingered after the service. And I never know what's going to happen when I teach on this subject. It's a difficult subject to listen to. I know it is. And the lady and her husband came up to me and said, Thank you for that sermon. And they reported to me, before they were married, they went to a provider of abortions. And the young man stayed in the car and the young lady went in. And she came out and... She said, I don't think we're going to go, I'm going to go through with this. And he said, I am so happy you're not. And now they have a beautiful son. In fact, they have two sons now. And this young man is a young man who is not only beautiful on the outside, he's a young man that is being raised now by a godly father and a godly mother. It's awesome. And the church here helped that young lady kindly, lovingly helped her. And there's opportunity for us to do that. And look, there are people whom you know probably who have undergone abortions. It's been traumatic for them. And we need to understand what the gospel says, that we're to take the gospel to such women and share the gospel with them if they don't know the gospel. Affirm what the Bible says, that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's look at number five. Speak the truth in love to pro-choice advocates. Do you know the Jane Doe in Roe versus Wade, the Jane Roe rather than Doe, that she is in real life Norma McCorvey? Do you know she came to know Jesus after a long, long effort to advocate abortion on demand? Did you know that? I wish I had time to tell the story. It is a phenomenal story. But she didn't come easily. You know how she got there? She got 
providentially, her office ended up right beside Operation Rescue in Dallas, Texas. And the leader there, Flip Benham, reached out to her and did others. And as time unfolded, the way they treated her lovingly, she came to Jesus and knows Jesus. Now she's an advocacy, has an advocacy for children who are in the womb. Speak out for the unborn. Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, 31, 89. We read them about speaking out for those who have no voice. Look, these babies in utero, they have no voice, do they? They're invisible to us for the most part. We need to speak out for them. Martin Niemöller, who was a pastor in Germany and pre-Nazi and Nazi Germany, he was put in prison for speaking out against the regime of the Third Reich and Adolf Hitler. He was taken to prison. He spent seven years in Dachau and survived. This is what he wrote, either in prison or after he got out. And it's been published widely. You probably heard some version of it. He said, they came for the socialists, and I was not a socialist, so I did not speak up. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I was not a trade unionist, so I did not speak up. Then they came for the Jews, and I was not a Jew, and I did not speak up. Then he said, finally, they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. What we need to understand then is that we have a voice And we have more than a voice. We have a responsibility to love people who are caught in this net of deception and, in some cases, destruction and minister to them and care for them and care about the unborn and love them. And then get involved simply. Get involved. There's opportunity. In fact, next Saturday, there's opportunity. I'm going to be going and walking, marching in a very peaceful kind of demonstration for life. Not to put anybody down, but to lift up the Word of God and to lift up children whom God loves who are human beings in their mother's wombs and are at risk. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God, for the instruction you give us, the opportunity you give us to care for people who are in trouble, hurting, confused, and little babies in the womb who have no voice. Lord, use us to be a voice to speak out for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.